Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai. Good morning and welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. In a matter of days, we could know whether our pandemic plan is working. How quickly can New Zealand get out of lockdown? Over the last few days, we are not seeing that spike, despite a very big increase in testing, and we're going to watch that closely over the next few days. Then, at a time when unprecedented measures are being taken to protect our health, how do we protect our democratic freedoms too? Governments take power in bad times and are very slow to relinquish them, even when conditions improve. We'll consider that issue shortly, but we begin with the latest from the public health response to COVID-19. The latest daily numbers show 82 confirmed or probable new cases of COVID-19 in New Zealand, bringing our confirmed total to 950. That's following a significant uptick in the number of tests being performed, with 3,600 possible cases tested on Friday. The Ministry of Health says it has the capacity to do 6,000 tests a day. So, at the start of day 11 of our lockdown, does that mean COVID-19 might be peaking in New Zealand? Dr Aisha Verrill is an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist from the University of Otago, based in Wellington. Morena. Morena. Dr Ashley Bloomfield says it's possible COVID-19 cases have peaked in New Zealand. From the data we have at the moment, what's your assessment? I'm, I'm still waiting to, uh, to be more reassured by the numbers actually coming down, uh, which I hope would happen as the numbers of uh, people returning from overseas, from places there are outbreaks, has uh, reduces. So, um, and there's an important point, I think, what we haven't seen is a breakdown of data by whether the cases are community transmission or not over time. And that's what I'm looking for, a reduction in cases that are acquired locally over time, and there's no data available on that yet. Have we been testing enough to rely the, on the data at this stage? We're almost there, I think. It's great that we have the capacity for 6,000 a day, so we need to raise the actual number of people tested to use up that capacity. And I think there's another important point. We went into this outbreak knowing that there are parts of our community that are poor, that live in crowded houses and often don't make it to the doctor. So in those sorts of settings, we could be missing an early outbreak. So we need to make sure that not only are we testing large numbers, but that we're doing it in all parts of our community. Does that mean we should be testing people who are asymptomatic? I don't think that's very valuable, but just making sure that we're looking uh, for people who have mild symptoms in the community who maybe aren't going to the doctor. I think that's important. We've been told that this week will be crucial in making future decisions. What do you think we need to see in the next few days? Yeah, so um, as I said, one, one thing is the number of community transmission cases reducing. But I think there are other um, aspects of our public health system that will reassure us about whether or not it's safe to come out of lockdown. One of them is the capacity to identify cases through testing and to trace their contacts. When we went into lockdown, we had the ability to trace the contacts of 50 cases a day. I think that needs to be closer to 1,000 for us to safely come out of lockdown and know that we won't have to go back into lockdown at a, the moment we have a small outbreak. And secondly, we need to have good data processes as well to make sure that we're not missing outbreaks in our community. Do we have the capacity for that tracing? I don't believe so. As I said, when we went into lockdown, it was very limited. Uh, we have, when you look at the countries that have done well internationally with controlling their outbreaks, they're all countries that experience the SARS outbreak. And so they have a real strong investment in their public health 
community nurses and so on that go out and do that contact tracing. We're starting from a, um, a, a very good workforce, but it's very small compared to the task that we're asking of them. So we really need to beef it up through, yes, more nurses, but also through um, call centre staff and potentially using digital technology like smartphone contact tracing apps. To be clear, when we're contact tracing, do we need to use COVID-19 tests? Do we need swabs? When you, you, do, you take a case um, who is diagnosed by, usually a confirmed case diagnosed by a swab, and then you trace the contacts, and you know they're all at risk. And whether or not they're ill, they need to go into self-isolation for two weeks. Of course, if they get ill, then they should have a test. So but if our, it's if, at risk of getting infection who go into isolation, and that's how you control the onward spread of the virus. So is this a shift in priorities for our public health specialists from responding to people who are uh, likely COVID-19 cases or are confirmed as being COVID-19 cases, a shift into tracing those people close to the confirmed cases? No, um, our public health specialists have been active at the border at looking after the cases and tracing the contacts. The problem is mm. all of that work has to be done at such scale now that the workforce um, is, is, in, is insufficient. So you need to raise the capacity for them to be able to do that. They have been doing it, but it, um, it needs to be, uh, they need to be better resourced. And one key statistic we haven't seen is the time it's taking to get contacts into isolation. At the beginning of Singapore's outbreak, their average time was 18 days. Well, by the time you catch, if you catch someone uh, 18 days after their exposure, it's too late. They've already transmitted it to other people. Mm. So and, uh, we need to know that statistic and be driving it down closer to four days in New Zealand. How difficult is that going to be? So this is a process that we routinely do in New Zealand. We just need to scale it up. I saw in a... Government announced a couple of weeks ago they've allocated $40 million to it. So I think the will is there, we just need to see the system in place to achieve it. You contributed to an expert editorial published on Friday, and the number one recommendation from you and your colleagues was this, and I quote, border controls with high-quality quarantine for incoming travellers. So to be clear, should all new arrivals in New Zealand be quarantined? Yes, and I, I'm a little reluctant to say that, but I think that is the conclusion you have to reach based on the data. The majority of our cases have been in returning travellers who have come from places where there's an outbreak. In my day-to-day -day practice, I look after people with tuberculosis, and we routinely put them in self-isolation at home. And public health um, officials are really expert at making those arrangements work uh, and spotting the people who can adhere to them and mm. monitoring that. Unfortunately, we're now having to do this at an industrial scale, and the um, least restrictive option has, has been shown not to work. So we probably do need to use a more restrictive option now. That means putting everyone who arrives in New Zealand in a hotel-like quarantine for two weeks. Well, hotels are the arrangements we have ready to go now. Mm. Months into this pandemic, there is fresh debate as to the effectiveness of face masks. Should all of us be wearing face masks when we're outside of the home? Yeah. Um, so obviously we use face masks in the hospital because they, they work there. There haven't been studies showing they work um, outside of, of those types of settings. Maybe that's because people aren't trained in how to use them properly. And maybe because they don't have enough. A face mask will only last for about four hours before it gets too wet. 
And you can still um, contaminate yourself from a face mask if you don't clean your hands properly afterwards. So I think if they're going to work, we're going to need a massive supply for the public to be able to use them. Uh, and um, obviously I'd hope that as a hospital worker would would have a chance to have the ones we, we need before we were using them in a setting where they're likely to be less effective in the public. Could more businesses be opening safely now? So it's, it's a really tough question. And I think with all these physical distancing measures that are in place, there's no, there's no textbook on how to do it. What the science behind physical distancing is just reducing the opportunities to, for the virus to pass from one mm. person to another by reducing contact. So you, it, I'd hope that over time we'd get to a new, more nuanced position on how we're using social distance. Uh, this physical distancing to, to reduce contacts between people. And workplaces will probably evolve better safety procedures. But I think another thing is if you view this as a strategic problem, how mm. do we get out of a level four lockdown? I just say I'd much rather we invested in public health measures like case identification and contact tracing so we could target those people we were putting in isolation rather than putting the whole country in isolation. So I see having a strong public health response as the way that we get businesses back open again and schools back open. But from a public health position, what is the difference in, you know, say, say the likes of Mitre 10 or, or Noel Leeming are currently available to do contactless sales for essential items. Why can't they do non-essential items as well? What is, what is the public health difference in that? It's all about the number of opportunities people have to make contacts with people outside their bubble. So anything that increases that number creates a greater risk. Dr Aisha Viral, tēnā thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jack. Now, just so you know, we had been hoping to speak with Health Minister David Clark again this morning. We were told he is unavailable for interviews this weekend. National leader Simon Bridges wants every Kiwi arriving in the country to be quarantined. We'll ask him why next. And with emergency powers at play, what protections do we have for our democracy? It's a debate taking place around the world. The police and lots of other public officials being given powers uh, which resemble those of a dictatorship. Kia ora e welcome back to Q&A. The Epidemic Response Select Committee got underway this week. Their online Zoom conference was compelling viewing for political junkies as ministers and officials were grilled about their COVID-19 decision-making. National Leader Simon Bridges is the chair of the committee. He joins me now with what we hope is a much better Skype connection than at this time last week. Tēnā welcome to Q&A. I just want to pick up uh, on the message we just heard there from Dr Aisha Verrill. She says it's time for all new arrivals in New Zealand to be quarantined. Do you agree with that yeah. position? Yes, I do. I think actually more than that, quarantining, and I, I think she would agree as well, and testing of uh, everyone. I heard you say in the intro, look, why? Um, I think because that's where our cases are coming from, and we can. Do you trust the data being published by the Ministry of Health? Yeah, look, I do. I think actually the committee has played a valuable role, though, in making it more transparent. If we go back to last week, we were hearing the message, or the week before, in fact, test, 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 but the numbers were going down, down, down. They weren't publishing those. Mm. Now we are seeing more publishing. We've got a way to go, though. I, I, I urge full transparency on this because I think it gives New Zealanders confidence. But have we been testing enough to this point 
to trust whatever data points are published in the next few days? I mean, in short, I would say no. I think we should be testing more. Look, we've made progress. In the last week, mm. we've made a lot of progress. We've gone from, you know, 900 on Sunday to more like 3,500 a day uh, right now. I would make the case, though, actually, we should be doing even more than that. Aussies ordered, I think, half a million fingerprint tests. I think we could potentially get into, uh, call me radical, but the tens of thousands. So who? Who do we test? Well, you know, I suppose about focusing where it matters most, and that's why we say quarantining. That's, of course, only 300. I think, though, if you dealt with everyone who had symptoms, uh, who had uh, above that, uh, had close contact, uh, had any international kind of uh, experience in the last wee while, you, you would be testing more. I'm not saying this is the only answer, but I suppose... If we stand back, what are we trying to achieve? We want to get mm. out of this lockdown as soon as we possibly can. That means the most effective lockdown. That's borders, testing. I agree with the expert you've just had before, tracing uh, and PPE. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm intrigued as to the logistics of testing, though, because if we're testing three and a half thousand people a day at, at the moment, and the Ministry of Health assures us that anyone with symptoms of COVID-19 will be tested in a prompt manner, how do we go about? testing tens of thousands more people if everyone is supposed to stay at home at the moment and the vast majority of those people will have no symptoms? Well, you'd have stations and the like. I mean, I'm not suggesting this is the silver bullet. I think one of the fascinating things, which says to me that the government must be incredibly agile, is the fact that of nearly a 1,000 cases now, we only have one fatality. I'm not downplaying that. Mm. That's an interesting factor here. I suppose, again, I just look at this and say, what are we trying to achieve? Let's focus on what matters. I think that's less, you know, whether someone's 200 metres outside of their neighbourhood mm. or not, whether they're going for a surf. It's borders, it's testing, and it's tracing. So if the government comes out this week and says the data shows we have flattened the curve and that we can get out of isolation in two and a half weeks' time, will you trust that decision? Firstly, in terms of intent, it's what I would love to see, right? We are devastating our economy, we're curtailing freedoms, and so the sooner we can get out, the better. I think, though, to answer that question, Jack, I would need to see the precise rationale and reasoning, and I would urge full transparency on this. I'd want to know what the likes of Professor David Skeg think. I'd want to know what that expert you've just had on, um, Aisha, would think about that. Um, it, we'd want to weigh all of those things uh, uh, up. Is the public health benefit of shutting down the economy worth the economic damage that a longer lockdown would bring? Let's be very candid about this. There comes a point at which it may not be. And the reason I say that is because this isn't an either-or, is it? Um, if you think about our economy, the longer we see the devastation, the job losses and the business going under, mm. it's heart attacks, it's mental health issues. Uh, dare I say it, it's, it's fatalities in, in its own way uh, as well. And so we need to be balancing these things. I, I say right now what it means is the government needs to do everything it can to have the most effective lockdown so we can get out of it soon as possible. I think it requires an agility because I don't think it has to be a strict either or. I think you were saying to your expert just before or about Australia. Look, could we, for example, have a more risk-based approach to the essential services? We look, if it's safe, 
if it's contactless, uh, actually the fashion designers can sell their goods uh, online. Uh, the forestry could get going. We've got agriculture going. We need to, I think, be quite agile about those questions now and certainly if lockdown goes longer. To be clear, though, do you think more businesses could be operating safely now? I think probably yes. If you'd asked me a fortnight ago, so I don't say this is a criticism of the government, I might have said, no, look, let's not do that. But when you see last night uh, on the television a guy mowing through his lilies, uh, when you hear stories about a number of people who can sell one thing online but not another, we're bringing it on and offshore. I think there is a, uh, a constructive conversation and the ability to do a bit more, providing it's safe, it's contactless, it, it meets some criteria. So, so what are those criteria? If businesses can prove that they are keeping their staff and their customers safe, they should be able to operate now? Yeah, that, that may well be the, same, the, the case, but I, but I do want to say, Jack, the critical issue, right? Yeah. The one that businesses are saying to me more than anything is, when can we get out? And so doing the stuff we can to get out sooner, that gives that light at the end of the tunnel but to businesses. I just, and sooner than later, the government should be giving us a sense of that certainty. Of course, I mean, everyone wants to be out of the lockdown safely as quickly as possible, but I'm asking you to, to, to take a position here. Should businesses that can safely operate now and prove they can safely operate now be allowed to safely operate? The, the, I can't design a system for you in the, the next minute. I think what I can say to you is my call to the government would be, look, we are in unprecedented times. It's not your fault. It's no one's fault. But let's try and deal with some of the random, mm. randomness we're seeing where one essential service is in, one isn't. Let's be agile and actually, potentially, we can move to a more risk-based system where, you know what, if it's safe, as you say, if it's contactless, uh, it may be able to be done. I mean, over time, we have to start thinking about what, why is agriculture essential? Why is forestry not? Um, particularly if this lockdown goes longer, which, as I say, I don't think anyone would want if we can safely get out of it. Do we need a curfew? No. Look, here's what I think we need to see when it comes to these things, is less confusion and more certainty. So in the last 48 or 72 hours, we've had Commissioner Bush say, mm. if I get in my car and go to the beach, I'm in trouble. We've had the Director General say, no, no, actually, it's OK to do a small distance in your car. I urge the government to provide us with the police guidelines and their legal advice so we know exactly what we can and can't do with some clarity. Well, I can, I can tell you now, and, and I'm not putting you on the spot here because you, you won't um, have any reason to necessarily have known this, we have been pursuing the police guidelines. They have published that last night, so we will Perfect. ensure that a link is made available and we'll have a bit more on that shortly. Before we leave you... Um, can Mr. I go one further, though, and just say we should also have the legal opinions? Because, again, in the last 72 hours, whether it's law professors... Mm or senior police, they are expressing unease about their ability under Section 70 of the Health Act to do some of the things they have been asked to do. Depending on how things go in the coming weeks, would you agree to postponing the election? I don't think I can say today. I think it's too soon. But let me, in a sense, give you this. Firstly, I am like I think the Prime Minister and the government resolutely focused on COVID-19 for the moment. It seems to me if we can come out of it sooner, that is within a month, there is the prospect of an election on time uh, for New Zealanders. 
Uh, if this drags on uh, with the kind of lockdown mm -hmm. down we've got now, look for much longer than a month, obviously, I think it's a statement of the obvious, having an election on September 19 becomes much, much more fraught and difficult. National Leader Simon Bridges. Tēnā koe. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post to our Facebook page or email us at q&a at tvnz.co.nz. Up next, cell phone tracking and sweeping state surveillance powers. Just what should be sacrificed for the sake of COVID-19? And 10 or 11 days into the lockdown, COVID-19 is already being blamed for the end of radio sport in some of our most popular magazines. What other media outlets are on the brink? And can the government do anything to save them? Hawke Mayanor, welcome back to Q&A. Already some world leaders have been accused of using the coronavirus pandemic to introduce authoritarian controls on their citizens. The challenge for all democratic governments is to get the right balance between enforcing rules to fight the virus and preserving freedoms. Here's Fena Owen. In the Tunisian capital, the government has just deployed surveillance robots, remotely operated by police, to enforce the lockdown. Earlier this last week, Hungary's parliament granted Prime Minister Viktor Orban sweeping new powers in the name of wiping out COVID-19. Excuse me. Britain's seen the rise of the Dobbin culture. The police there have been given more powers, and that's been questioned. It's the police and lots of other public officials being given powers uh, which resemble those of dictatorship. But nothing like the Philippines. Shoot them dead. Yes, that's the president's message to anyone defying the coronavirus lockdown. Countries like China and Taiwan have used cell phone technology to enforce quarantine, and that's just been rolled out in Israel. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has authorised cell phone tracking of people who test positive. If an individual is walking around in Jerusalem and he's fled the isolation, we have to find him as quick as possible. The Israeli government says this surveillance measure is only in place for 30 days, but some of its citizens are not so confident. This is aiming our uh, basic privacy. That's the problem. I guess it's not a problem for fighting the corona, the virus, but it's an excuse to keep using it on different stuff. And that's the fear. What happens after the pandemic? Act leader David Seymour says it's worrying libertarians across the world and everyone should be worried. Sadly, the history of crises, whether they be wars, epidemics or whatever, is that governments take power in bad times and are very slow to relinquish them even when conditions improve. David Seymour is not suggesting New Zealand is about to slide into authoritarian rule. He's part of the Epidemic Response Committee, set up to scrutinise decisions made around our COVID-19 response. But the committee is not enough to uphold our democratic values, according to former politician Peter Dunn. He'd like to see an e-parliament. All we're reliant upon are the daily briefings that are coming from officials and the Prime Minister, and with the greatest of respect, they will always be coloured by the story that they want to present. So I think the Parliament as a representative institution of the people should be meeting far more frequently, 
to, to answer these questions and to give public reassurance, frankly. David Seymour agrees, but as many commentators have pointed out this week, thinks the most pressing threat to our democracy is what he calls a lack of transparency around the new powers given to police. And how many staff have you got working today? He's calling for these guidelines to be released to the public and directed his concern to the Police Commissioner Mike Bush in the committee this week. Uh, my commitment in one statement is to take advice from the Solicitor General uh, on that very point. And what about releasing I, the Crown Legal Advice you've had today? That not just the public, but everyone needs clarity. Māori are calling for even-handed policing across all communities. We know historically there's a distrust around sometimes how police powers are used, so just really urging them to mitigate that and be very clear about how they're exercising their growing power. Then Saturday afternoon, the Ministry of Health addressed concerns about police power and what people can and can't do during lockdown. The law governing public movements during an epidemic has been posted on their website as an official notice, and now New Zealanders can easily read it for themselves. Meanwhile, the Irish government has just decreed that people who leave their homes for exercise must stay within a two-kilometre radius. In Julia Faipoti's Rohi on the East Coast, the Māori communities, along with the police, are taking a lead in monitoring movements of people. That's about what good partnership looks like and being led by communities and by Māori living in those communities. So we want police to be working, um, to be working with us. Whatever's happening with other governments, she says, let's preserve our freedoms and uphold the Aotearoa way. Fina Owen reporting there. And Fina also asked the police when those police operational guidelines would be made public. And last night they were. The document was posted on the police website just after six o'clock. We spoke to David Seymour last night who welcomed the development, saying the return of written law is extremely important and this proves how critical the Epidemic Response Committee is. He had few issues with the substance of the guidelines, saying despite some ambiguities, the restrictions are linked to the public health objective and proportional to it as well. Many media companies are seeing record audiences or traffic for their journalism right now, but also suffering from a massive decline in advertising revenue. This week has been particularly bleak, with German publisher Bauer shutting down its stable of magazines that includes The Listener, North and South and Women's Day. NZME has announced one of its stations, Radio Sport, would close as well, and staff at MediaWorks have been asked to take pay cuts. Kiwi Dr Mel Bunce teaches journalism at City University of London and is with us this morning. Tēnā queer, thanks for your time. Were you surprised to see Bauer Media fold so early in this COVID-19 response? Uh, thanks for having me, Jack. Um, I, I don't think I was surprised about um, the fact that they would at some point uh, fold or want to leave the New Zealand market, um, but I think uh, myself and a lot of other people were obviously surprised by how quickly it happened and that kind of sense that it was an overnight announcement, there wasn't any kind of early warning around it. Where then does this coronavirus leave the rest of the New Zealand media? It's such a... Um, unusual time, isn't it? And there's this absolute paradox around the fact that people are consuming more news than they have almost in kind of living memory. And we're seeing a lot of news organisations are seeing their consumption up 50% or so. Um, but at the same time, there's uh, acute 
crisis because advertising money is has dropped down enormously of course mm. so um people advertising kind of everything events and travel of course all of these things has just dropped off and so most of our news organizations that are really dependent on their advertising money are facing a really um, acute and intense crisis right now are there particular media organizations that you see as being especially vulnerable at the moment I think it puts different pressure on different organisations. Um, it's uh, very difficult for TV because the production costs are so high with TV and those costs are fixed. Um, and so if there isn't advertising coming in to recoup those costs, there's a lot of challenges. Um, I'm also particularly concerned, and this is something that um, kind of commentators around the world are, uh, have been concerned about for some time, which is the health of local news organisations, in particular newspapers. Um, this crisis is coming on the back of two decades of declining resources, um, declining revenue, and these mm. organisations are already really struggling to survive. So having this uh, pressure, especially when so many of them are really reliant on advertising dollars, um, that's where I'd really be worried. The government has offered wage subsidy schemes. There is a loan system available for businesses in New Zealand as well. But do you think the government needs to step in more to support commercial media organisations in New Zealand? Yeah, I think it's tricky because there's we don't yet know exactly the scale of this crisis. So we have a short-term uh, immediate pressure on the lack of advertising. But the kind of longer-term picture that people are starting to worry about a, a, a lot as well, of course, is the spectre of a recession and what that impact would have on advertising money as well. So um, in, the, in 2008, mm. the uh, global recession saw kind of news organisations losing 20% or so of revenue. If that happens again, there certainly be a lot of commercial news organisations that will struggle to survive and may close down. I think personally that the government should be uh, looking to step up its support of commercial media in terms of supporting New Zealand on air more, perhaps expanding um, what's been a pretty successful local democracy reporters scheme. Um, it might be things like bridging loans that they can guarantee. There's, there's many kind of elegant ways in which the government could step into this space without um, threatening the independence of those news organisations. I'm not looking to, to identify specific media organisations, but I know already there is fairly public concern for the likes of MediaWorks and Sky Television. Is the government nimble enough to help those organisations more than it is at the moment? Nimble enough. I think so. I mean, I, I get the sense from the um, messaging I'm seeing that there's a kind of commitment and an interest mm. to trying to support those news organisations. Um, there's kind of ongoing discussions about it. Um, it's not clear that there's one model that would work. That's the problem. So it's not that I think we're um, sealing kind of a, a failure to act on a particular uh, model that everyone agrees upon. I think there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of disagreement about what the best way forward is. Um, and I think it's a time for people to try and be extremely creative and open-minded about what that support might look like. Okay, then are there models outside of government assistance that might work in New Zealand? Um, well, first, just to say government assistance can come in lots of different forms. Yeah. So it can be, for example, tax breaks. It could be, for example, um, one thing that I think in the long term is going to be crucial is helping news organisations transition to non-profit models. Um, I think... Uh, the future for most, a, a lot of local community news organisations may be that they're not commercial anymore. And so that's something we need to help plan for and support for as well. Um, outside of the government, um, the very biggest and best thing that anyone can do is, of course, subscribe, uh, become members, really try to support, especially New Zealand-based news organisations mm. um, as much as they can.
You mentioned tax breaks. What about taxing the internet giants that have taken much of the traditional advertising dollars um, away from traditional forms of media? I, I can appreciate that people see there's a sense of justice in doing that. Um, I'm a bit more agnostic about where the revenue comes from. Uh, I think there's a big pot of government money that comes from various revenue and can go to particular causes mm. at different times. And, and in a way, I'd be a little concerned about directly linking it to that revenue just in case something then happened to that revenue. So I think the, the more important thing is that we commit to seeing the media as a really important um, public good that we are committed to providing at least minimum amounts of support to so that, you know, in times of crises, we can rely on there being trustworthy news and information um, to help people uh, make the right decisions for themselves and their family and, and make the votes meaningful. The Broadcasting Minister, Chris Farfoy, had previously ruled out usurping the Commerce Commission with specific legislation, but given the circumstances presented by COVID-19, should NZME and Stuff be allowed to merge? <laughs> such, that's such a thorny one, and there were always arguments on both sides for the merger and many high emotions about whether it should be allowed to go forward. Um, I actually think COVID-19 has given even more, uh, made it even more complicated, because on the one hand, the merged entity might have been better at weathering the storm that's about to come, um, you know, through cost-cutting and through negotiations with advertisement, it might have had more mm. heft. But at the same time, think about how vulnerable we would be uh, if, uh, as many people said during the initial debates, one particular company owned 90% of our news industry in print and online, and then that company faced declining revenue, and, and it was owned by a hedge fund overseas, and it decided to shut overnight uh, in the same way that Bauer Media had. It's it's not beyond the realms of possibility that we would then kind of see a closure of almost every news organisation mm -hmm. in the country overnight if that was in the hands of one organisation. But at the same time, I don't have the solutions for the other way forward. I'm just flagging that up as yet another concern on top of um, the blow that merger posed to plurality in the in the media landscape. Is this playing out in other countries as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's particularly um, significant in the US right now, where, again, there were um, local media um, were under enormous pressure. Um, numbers of journalists mm. have been cut mm. for, for years and years. Here in the UK, a lot of news organisations have stopped publishing. Um, a lot of journalists have been furlonged. Um, and there is a sense that those that have stopped printing might not return to printing afterwards. Dr Bunce, what do you think the New Zealand journalism landscape will look like at the end of the COVID-19 response? Um, I think that's incredibly hard because it really depends uh, when COVID-19 ends um, and what the kind of resulting recession looks like. Um, I think, I hope, I'm optimistic that with the kind of talent we have in New Zealand and the kind of commitment that people hopefully emerging from this crisis have towards news media, I think we're seeing just how important it is, mm. how it's helped save lives and, and stop the spread of COVID-19. I'm hoping that with that kind of commitment, people will start experimenting more with new types of news organisations, new membership schemes and voluntary processes where audiences can help support it. The, the crucial thing, I think, is that we, we move away from a more advertising-based revenue model for that media, and we start experimenting with a variety of other forms. Um, but yeah, the, sorry, in answer to your question, it depends whether 
Mm. Uh, the kind of lockdown uh, and the recession, if we're talking a couple of months or we're talking about 18 months, uh, it's, it's very impossible to say um, what the outcome would be without knowing that. Dr. Mel Bunce, we always appreciate your time and insights. Tina Kui, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jack. Bye. After the break, China, first to lock down, first to open back up. But can we trust the coronavirus data being published by the Chinese government? And if New York is overwhelmed, what will happen in Liberia? And why a vaccine could be worthless if the pandemic takes hold in Africa? Kia ora no. Social media sleuths analysing photos from Wuhan funeral homes have accused China of under-reporting coronavirus deaths in the region. Officially, the virus claimed 2,500 deaths in Wuhan, but by counting the number of urns being returned by funeral homes in the region, that number has been estimated by some as being as high as 42,000 deaths. This as China looks to reset its economy in the wake of COVID-19. Rodney Jones is an economist from Wigram Capital Partners uh, Associates and lived in China for many years. He's been monitoring the Chinese response to COVID-19. And a short time ago, I asked him what his modelling illustrates in China. Yeah, so we've been doing two types of modelling from the start of the year. We have a very strong data science team. I mean, we do this standard macroeconomic analysis, but we also have a data science team that's led by John McDermott, the former assistant governor of the Reserve Bank. So to me, from the start of the year, I think when I was last on the show with you back in mid-February, it was all about the virus and how the economies are affected by this, whether you do lockdown, whether you, you know, go for herd immunity. Mm. And so that's what we've still been, been focused on with China. We've gone through and, you know, we've gone through a period of lockdown. We're emerging from that lockdown now. And it's very hard as an economy emerges from a lockdown to kind of anchor where you are. Is GDP down 10%? Is it down 20%? What sort of magnitude are we, are we dealing with? Can we trust the numbers coming out of China? Well, this is the big global debate, uh, and particularly, I mean, there's two sorts of issues. There's the, the virus data and the infections and deaths, mm. and then there's the, the economic data. On the, the data around the virus, you know, we had that period, just about the time I appeared on your show, China goes through these periods where it really opens up and you get fantastic data as an analyst, you get excited, mm. and then they realise the story has been told abroad and they clamp down. So what we know about China is they did contain the virus through the lockdown, but we don't know how they did it and the path of that containment. And we don't know, um, yeah, we don't know if there's still the level of background infections. You know, this is a very dynamic virus. It's hard to stamp out. So we, we, we really don't know that. But I think... You know, there's a lot of blame going on right now. We see that from the US. But in reality, we've known China. We've talked on this show at length about how we have to be realistic in the way we look at China. They're mm -hmm. always going to do this. The problem for the West is that the US, with Trump, no longer had the CDC in Beijing, no longer had the pandemic group in the National Security Council. So we weren't looking. We rely on the US. And the US kind of took their eye off the ball. Does that mean that as China looks to recover from the coronavirus, there are only so many lessons the rest of us can take? I think that... So I was critical of the lockdown, mm. and now I realise we didn't have the full data, and I also realise that 
you know, I thought we could deal with it through public health interventions like we saw in Singapore, like we saw in, in, in Korea. What we've learned from both places is, you know, Singapore locked down on Friday night. Having been relatively successful, in the end, they had too much community transmission. They went into a lockdown like we are. So what we've learned, this is an amazingly dynamic virus, not in terms of mutates, but, the, you know, like what we see in New Zealand, you know, what one person can affect 50 at one social event, mm. really dynamic virus. And in the end, lockdown seemed the, the, the only option. So is there any lesson that New Zealand can take from China's recovery at this stage? I would... No, I would say not. I think we're at the cutting edge with Australia. I mean, Australia is making real traction in terms of bringing their rates down. That's you know great to see. New South Wales and Victoria, the government's moved ahead of the federal government. We're going to have to make our own rules. We cannot look to China and work it out. We don't have enough data. If they gave us the real data, sure, we could learn a lot, but we don't have that. China is, of course, a critical trading partner for New Zealand. How much has that trade been damaged? It's actually surprising. And this is, I think, we'll have to see the effect of the, the, you know, unprecedented economic slump we're seeing in the West. Mm. But goods trade has actually held out relatively well. If you go back and look back at our, you know, bad export downturns in the past, this is not one of them. Exports have actually been relatively resilient. Exports of goods. The hit to New Zealand is much, through, much more through exports of services. So I think right now our trade position has held up much better than I would have thought. But we'll have to see what's the spillover from, you know, this really depressionary shock in the US and in Europe. When you were here in February, you estimated China was losing about 1% of GDP a week. From the modelling you're doing at the moment, what do you think growth will be for China off the back of this? Oh, well, we think GDP, not annualised, just GDP was mm. down 13% in the first quarter. If we had genuine numbers, we do our own alternate measures. Those alternate measures are down 13%. So if you annualise that, that's like 60%. Mm. It's down around 13%. And then we'll recover from that. I think there's a fair chance China will contract this year. They will actually have negative GDP over the course of the year. Now, I highly doubt that they would report that. But I think there's a fair chance China does not grow this year. What will be the ongoing economic implications for New Zealand? Will we see Chinese students and tourists back here sometime soon? Well, you know, this is, this is, I divide the, I think we have to think in terms of BC and AC, before COVID, after COVID. Mm. And that's, our world will be different as we reemerge. I mean, our goal right now in New Zealand will be, to be get to the end of the lockdown and get our domestic economy starting to work and then have that trade in goods and then see how much we've lost in GDP and how high our unemployment is. We don't know what will happen to globalization. You know, you know what we've learned is this virus is extremely dynamic. So in the end, we're going to need ubiquitous testing and or a vaccine. That's going to take time. So we're going to be in a very different world for some time to come. Exports of, of goods will be okay, but services is a real problem. With the US taking a more isolationist position, does China see this as an opportunity to step up as a world power? Uh, yeah, they've been quick to do so. and We've had some things in the South China Sea in the last day or two. You know, it's very hard to read. I think they're going to have their own domestic 
issues. I think this economic shock is a very severe. What happens to the migrant workers? What happens to unemployment in the cities? Mm. How? What happens to the property market? So they're going to have their plate pretty full. You know, there's no winners from the shock. Everyone, every country, every economy faces really profound challenges, unlike we've seen, you know, for 70 years. Mm. You have been modelling the coronavirus spread in New Zealand. What is the data telling you at this stage? Yeah, so, you know, we're economists, but we're used to working with time series data. We have a biostatistician um, with a PhD on our team. So we, from the start, started modelling the virus in China. And then the, the data stopped after Xi Jinping declared a people's war. And we've taken that technique. There are a bunch of techniques and approaches built after SARS. So that, you know, it, it's kind of been a horror story in some ways. We project ahead a week or two. For New Zealand, we did longer-term simulations out a couple of months. And you see, you know, we've been watching New York. We've been watching Italy from the start. We've had good news stories like Korea. New Zealand, the way it works is you want to be wrong on your forecasting. So if we go back to about the 24th of March, we were saying by this weekend, New Zealand would have 4,000 cases. Right. The fact that we only have 1,000 is a big win, or we'll probably have a thousand today. It's a big win. So you you win, the, the, the wins in this game, if you like, are unseen. You don't see it, it's the cases that never happen. So we have moved the curve lower. I prefer that term rather than suppressing the curve. We have moved the curve lower, we have a thousand cases. So we, we should think of this like a rugby match. We're playing into the wind in the first half. What we have to do, this match is four weeks long. We've just got to get to the first half kind of hanging in there, which is what we're doing at the moment. We can't expect to win in the first half. But by the time we get to the last two weeks, the win will be behind us. And that's when we'll start to see the real gains and the real effect of the lockdown. I'm optimistic. I think the data we're getting out of Australia is good. The lockdown is working there. They started more slowly. They phased in the, the state governments to believe, not the federal government. We can see it working there. We can see we aren't on that exponential curve anymore, it, it, it will work here. But we will need to wait for the last two weeks. It won't be till kind of next Sunday that we can start to feel better. Rodney Jones from Wigram Capital Advisors. Coming up on Q&A, a Kiwi doctor who fought Ebola in West Africa with a dire warning for all of us. There's one respirator in the entire country of Liberia of, you know, five and a half million people. Uh, they don't even have oxygen cylinders. Between Europe and the United States, coronavirus has devastated some of the world's best resourced countries. But public health experts say the biggest threat to global health may still be ahead of us as COVID-19 sweeps across Africa. Dr Penny Milsom is a researcher in global public health governance and policy at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She also volunteered in Liberia with the Ebola response. And a short time ago, I asked her about that experience. So I went to Liberia with the intention of uh, working in a Ebola treatment unit. And I guess my experience was uh, a classic experience of the, the rapid um, evolution of um, what happens in outbreak settings. So we, we, we went there with the intention of working in a bottle treatment unit and we ended up um, re-establishing a hospital, um, a, a local government hospital that had been essentially overrun by Ebola with, you know, many health workers dying and um, the hospital um, collapsed essentially. So we um, revitalised the hospital and um, developed the necessary infection prevention and control um, strategies and procedures so that we could attempt to open the hospital safely, albeit with extremely limited resources. 
Obviously, Ebola and coronavirus are very different infections, but what did your experience responding to that outbreak in West Africa teach you about the resourcing of those countries? So, you know, it goes, it, it's, it goes without saying that these, these countries are some of the poorest countries in the world and they, they simply have, um, they have health systems that are, that are terribly under-resourced at the best of times, that they can't manage, you know, regular health, health conditions, let alone um, the huge surge of patients that come in an outbreak setting. So, um, you know, the, the weak health systems um, really come to the fore in these kinds of, kind of, um, uh, kind of situations. Mm. I would say the second thing would be that um, social capital, so trust between government and, and the people, trust between people themselves and also the trust that the government has in their people, um, really becomes extremely important during an outbreak. And it's not something that you can build overnight. It's something that, you, that governments need to invest in in the long term by providing social services, by providing health services in an equitable way to their, to their populations. And this, this hadn't been happening in West Africa because these, these governments are hugely under-resourced. So we had enormous problems with um, with rumours, with lack of trust of health workers, um, of NGO workers as well. Mm. Um, people were not attempting to Ebola treatment units to be cared for, and they were out in the community spreading spreading Ebola, um, and the, the effects were catastrophic. So it wasn't until we really engaged with communities, um, we engaged with community leaders, that the response really started to turn around, and um, communities took and you know took leadership of the, the yeah. response within their yeah within their families within their communities. What do you expect will happen when coronavirus progresses more in Africa? So, I think the you know particularly in West Africa, having had the experience of Ebola, these governments are extremely aware that if they don't contain it um, in the very beginning, then then they are on the way to outbreaks with much worse um, outcomes than what happened during Ebola. And we were talking about 11,000 deaths just in West Africa, so they're extremely concerned. Um, you know, these people, they don't have, they live in, you know, Ebola, will, uh, sorry, COVID-19 and will, Corona will spread more rapidly in these settings. People live in slums, they live very close to each other. Um, they don't have access to clean water, they can't afford to buy hand sanitizer. Um, so the, uh, the, the infection will spread very rapidly in these communities. And then the second thing I would say is that we need to be thinking about people in low-income countries, because although they don't have very old populations, um, they have people who are extremely immunocompromised. They have huge numbers of the population who suffer from tuberculosis. Um, in many African countries, HIV, South Africa has a 14% um, HIV um, rate in their, in their population. Um, malnutrition is, you know, just rampant across Africa. All of these conditions expose, weaken the immune system and could well make people um, vulnerable to moderate and severe, um, uh, ex you know, infection from COVID-19. And that coupled with extremely well weak health systems. These, these, you know, hospitals, we're not talking about respirators in these hospitals. There's one respirator in the entire country of Liberia of, you know, five and a half million people. Uh, they don't even have oxygen cylinders. So, you know, we're going to see people dying from not just severe or critical um, infections, but people dying from moderate infections that just, you know, wouldn't happen in, uh, in developed countries. So it's, it's huge and so on. It's concerning. 
I know there is concern from epidemiologists as well that if the coronavirus uh, proceeds uh, uh, you know, quickly throughout Africa, that potentially the virus can mutate, which would render a vaccine unusable. I think, I, yeah, I think it's a concern that um, people in the wealthy world would be only concerned about people living in developing countries because of the fear that if we don't provide support to them to respond effectively, um, then the outbreak could come back in with a second wave in, the, in, you know, in wealthy countries. Of course, that is, that is a concern and that, that may well happen. But I think, um, you know, we're, if we are truly all in this together, as I think a number of the leaders, global leaders around the world are saying, then, then we need wealthy countries need to step up and, um, and start showing support for developing countries um, because they're going to need huge resources and technical support yeah. to respond. What do you make of New Zealand's response so far? I think the, the, the decision to lock down um, when New Zealand did lock down was necess necessary. We, we didn't know the level of community spread and New Zealand just didn't have the, the capacity, the ICU capacity to be able to handle a, a huge surge of people needing that high level of care. Um, so I think that decision was right. It's a little unclear now where to from here. Um, so I think it needs to be, those things need to be really clear and transparent in the public and in the public domain so that there can be mm. debate around it. Um, I think we also need to be really thinking about the unintended consequences of a lockdown. You know, we have, we have people, huge, huge, huge levels of domestic violence in New Zealand. Are we thinking about those kids and, and those women um, who are subject to domestic violence in their home in a lockdown situation? Are we thinking about our Pacific um, community who perhaps have, you know, three generations living under one roof and, and the, the risk of community, trans sorry, familiar transmission within the family group? So I think we need to be having all these people around the decision-making table so we can, as we make decisions along the way, um, we can be anticipating the possible unintended yeah. consequences of the actions that we're taking. And in a global sense, what are the lessons we can take from coronavirus? I think certainly in the short term, this, this, this um, outbreak has, has really shown us how interconnected we are, um, you know, across countries as well as um, within our own communities. Um, so I think that's one thing. I think people are turning inwards at the moment and building, building strong communities, but I think we also need to be looking outwards and, and building very strong collaborations across country borders. But in the longer term, I think that this provides an opportunity um, for us to really look at the inequalities in our countries and in and between, you know, within and between our countries, because inequalities are inevitably going to make this outbreak worse. People who um, are in situations you know, living in refugee camps, people who don't have access to clean water, people who live in slum settings. Um, you know, they're, they're going to, these, in these situations, the outbreak is, is just going to spread rapidly and people are going to be, you know, devastated. So I think this, you know, while we, people are, we, we're thinking about all the people who are being affected by this and now um, in terms of um, people who are losing loved ones. But I think in the long term, we need to think, really take this opportunity to, to, um, to address these inequalities and, and put social justice yeah. at the centre of political decision-making to prevent um, the devastation that these outbreaks do, can, you know, do and can cause. Dr Penny Milsom.
Ko motu, that is us for Q&A this week. Thanks for watching. Anā mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your contributions. Stay safe. Get some appropriate exercise. Keep in touch with your loved ones. We have decided, given the circumstances, we are going to do a show next weekend. Easter Sunday. Hey te wa. We'll see you then at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.